Welcome to Sammy Rangel, the Life Technician, first episode podcast. I'm looking forward to a long relationship of talking about and sharing with you guys some issues that may uh, may inspire others and may lead to answers for some and may lead to questions for others. I want to thank you for joining and for your support. Since this is the very first episode, I'm just going to kind of give you an introduction to who I am and where I come from, what some of my perspectives are, in hopes that it might encourage you to tune in as I post these uh, these messages out there and hope to gain an audience as these issues are dealing with significant life issues, trauma, abuse, violence, hate, forgiveness, suffering, change, recovery, you name it. We will cover the gambit. I'll give you a little bit of a background of who I am. Uh, feel free to look me up on Facebook under Sammy Rangel. We also have a website called Formers Anonymous, of which I am the founder of. It's a 12-step group with a 2000 feel to it with updates and advancements in the movement. It's a recovery group for men and women addicted to street life, violence, crime, who've know something about prison, drugs, alcohol, street life, th things like that. I also am the author of a book called Four Bears, The Myths of Forgiveness. I talk about that as well at some point during these podcasts. And you can find us on sammyrangle.com or formersanonymous.org. I do want to share with the audience that as you listen, please be aware that some of the content can be disturbing, can create emotional reactions, and so listen, understanding that the topics are real and uh, may evoke strong emotion or mental responses from you. It wasn't that long ago when I discovered that I was the second child my mother had failed to kill. I was 41 years old when I realized that I wasn't alone in the abuse I had endured as a child. My family had kept this from me all these years. My mother was five months pregnant with me when she almost killed my 20-month-old brother, Ricky. She had beaten him with a Tonka truck. The report said his body was in massive bruises, he was losing consciousness, he had a fractured skull, and he had permanent paralysis down his body. The trail goes dead from there. I was set on the path of trying to find who I, a brother who I thought was dead. I was sitting at my desk in the clinic as a mental health therapist waiting to see my next patient when I found this news out. As many of you may know, I had worked through a lot of the issues of things that she had done to me and to my siblings. But the rage and anger that I felt for what she had done to somebody else I didn't even know just yet, but instantly felt connected to, overwhelmed me. It threatened all my sensibilities. I knew that getting up and killing her was a viable option for me and within me. It reminded me of so many things. I was three years old when I was raped alongside my, two, my sister who was two years older than me. From there, things only got worse. We were isolated from family. I was being starved, sleep deprived. I had no room. I had no privacy. I had maybe three or four pairs of pants to my name that were from the Goodwill and they were army wool pants of an adult male. 
with a few shirts. I walked around smelling like urine most of the time because I wasn't allowed to go to the bathroom or would often pee on myself at night while sleeping on a wooden floor or kneeling down next to my mother's bed as she often made me do. At times I was hidden in the attic. I remember being held upside down by my father while she would hit me in my private areas with a steel pipe. While I was being beaten, I would often be forced to eat my own feces, to drink my own urine, to look up my own vomit. She would make me eat these hot jalapeno peppers from the garden and would hold her hand over my mouth so that I couldn't throw up. In her. And I remember having blisters in my mouth and in my throat from how hot, from the burns from these peppers. I'd be walking around naked or semi-clothed and bruised or being beaten and my siblings would be sitting next to me or near us but they would have to pretend like they didn't know what was going on or couldn't see or hear this beating taking place right next to them by the time I was 11 I ran away within the first year I was in having sex I was in a gang had witnessed my first homicide within days of leaving home and by the time the end of that summer before I turned 12, me and my 11-year-old girlfriend buried our first child together. Gradually became more violent as a way of communicating my hurt and anger. In and out of group homes, mental institutions, youth prisons, shipped out of state because of my violence and aggression as a young adolescent boy. By the time I was 17, I was sent to a prison as an adult, and a few weeks into that eight-month stay, I survived my first race riot. The kind of race riot you see on TV like in American Me where all the inmates take over the prisons and start stabbing each other and guards. During that riot, when I got separated from my group, when the fighting and shooting was taking place, I got, a man, a black man joined the fight with me to try to help me escape from being cornered by about 20 or 30 men, all armed to the teeth with homemade knives and weapons. And when the guard drew his, um, noticed us and drew his attention down on us with his gun, he shot the one black man who was fighting with his fists, yet I stood there with two knives in my hands, armed, facing 20 to 30 other white, aggressive men who were also armed to the teeth. Needless to say, he, he died. I tried to get him to the hospital, and uh, the superintendent refused, said that no one would be coming in or out of the unit once they had control. In another round, I started another round of fighting, and I attacked that superintendent. I broke his jaw, overpowered guards, took the keys, and me and a group of people forced our way to the hospital in the prison to try to save my friend's life. He didn't make it, of course. At the time of that incident, I was 90 days close to going home. And instead, I spent the next 28 months of segregation for my part in the riot, convicted of new crimes and new charges, became a gang member, and I remember, I mean, a gang leader, and I remember walking in or thinking of myself as some sort of punk kid when I went in, but knowing that I was coming home an extremist, violent, without compassion or empathy, without any sense or value of life, much less my own. Within months of my discharge, I was soon back in prison in another state for violent gun crimes.
Reliving the past, I had turned another two-year sentence into seven years for beating up four more guards in this new prison system over a racist slur that was used by one of them. It became apparent at some point that I was so entrenched in my pain that I wanted to escape it. I was forced to go into this prison program and this psychiatrist made me face my mother through an empty chair. It was then that I realized I had spent my entire life trying to outsmart my own story, trying to outrun my own experience. I ask you now, what is it that I couldn't outsmart? This story is full of paths I chose, but built into each step was the unknown and what was unexpected. Was it my experience showing me my blind spots? I also know I had a cathartic opportunity if I became willing to take the challenge. What made me take up the challenge to change my life? Is it the opportunity in front of us to understand our story in a different way? To get a chance to see if it makes sense? It may be an opportunity to experience a better life even. Have we outgrown or outlived the usefulness of our current positions about our past experiences? When the unexpected happens and we embrace the idea of having hope, is much possible? And by following the path it has led to figuring out what forgiveness can offer and truly is, but it's not just through forgiveness. It's also gradually building a counter-narrative to all the old ones. A way to create a new narrative. The intent is to forgive, but it can only happen when we recreate our new narratives. The unexpected may be that, we, that what we are seeking may not come by obtaining what we think that gift is, but perhaps it is by obtaining something else first that leads to that gift. We may want to consider the invitation to embrace the new story or we will find that we are stuck until we find ourselves rewriting our stories. What I have learned is that although the details of our lives may be different, the underlying process of getting stuck in the parts of life is the same for all of us. We do not have to be victims of our own stories of the experiences of our lives or of the way that we tell these stories of our lives. But interestingly enough, stories are the way out, and it is us who create those stories. And we hold the power to change our stories and to create the new story and the new path. I ask you to consider whether or not what I'm sharing with you is valuable. There's much more to it, but for now, that's enough. Thank you for joining Sammy Rangel, The Life Technician, Episode 1.